Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one nearby, underneath the seats in front of you. And uh, you should be able to find 1 Corinthians chapter 6 toward the end of that Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you as our gift to you because we want you to have a copy of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll read just three verses today, uh, beginning in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for gathering this specific group of people here at Indian Creek Baptist Church this morning. Belonging to this church family is a privilege. It's one that's blessed me and I'm sure many others would testify to the same thing. And that's because of the work of your spirit in your people. You've changed us. You've taken people who were snooty religious hypocrites and you've humbled them. You've taken people who were stuck in life-dominating sin and you've set them free. You've washed us. You've set us apart. You've made us holy vessels in your temple. And you've justified us so that when we stand before you, we will be declared not guilty. And we will inherit your kingdom. Father, we recognize today that there are probably people in this room for whom that has not happened yet. You have not converted them. They are not born again. And so, Father, we pray for your people and for those who have yet to believe that you would use your word to change us today and that you would leave us changed after this time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. On September 26, 1962, the jangling sounds of banjo player Earl Scruggs and rhythm guitarist Lester Flatt crackled through thousands of television sets across the nation. As they introduced for the first time for CBS what would later become one of the most popular sitcoms of all time. Before the show was finally canceled in 1971, the Beverly Hillbillies would air 271 episodes, or I'm sorry, 274 episodes, including what continues to be the most watched half-hour sitcom episode of all time. Yes, this is true. 
By the way, it's called the giant jackrabbit, in case you're curious. If you're not familiar with the Beverly Hillbillies, you've missed out on one of America's greatest cultural experiences. I mean, uh, there's just nothing like it. But since I know how far we've fallen from our former glories as a nation, and it's not necessarily your fault if you haven't seen the show, allow me to explain its premise. It all starts when Jed Clampett, an impoverished, uneducated, and generally backward hillbilly, finds oil on his property in Bug Tussle, Appalachia. Immediately, he becomes a multimillionaire, and his cousin Pearl convinces him to move into a posh mansion in Beverly Hills, along with his daughter Ellie Mae, his mother-in-law, Granny, and Jethro, his cousin once removed. The entire show revolves around the, the, the contrast, the, the juxtaposition between the Clampets' simple, naive country ways and the uppity materialism of their wealthy neighbors who cannot understand why the wealthiest family on their street seems to be the most rustic. See, by the time the Clampets pull up to their new home in the overloaded and ancient vehicle that they had driven across the country, they are no longer the same people that they had been before becoming millionaires. They're different now, but they don't act like it. They don't even realize it. And, and, and folks, you know this. When the Beverly Hillbillies do this, it's funny. In fact, it's almost a good thing. They're wealthy and they live at the center of American cultural life, but they act like they're not. They act like they still live on the margins, and it's endearing. But did you know that Christians do the same thing? I don't mean to say that we start off poor and then we become rich and we don't learn to act like we're rich. I mean that we start off far from God, and then God draws us in close, but we don't remember that we're different and we fail to act into our identity. And when we do this, it isn't funny, it isn't cute or endearing, it's actually tragic and unfitting. Because the shift, the conversion of every believer from lost to found, from spiritually impoverished to, to spiritually rich, from rebel to rescued, from sinner to saint, is dramatic, absolute, life-altering, and profound, changing a person from the inside out. And therefore, when believers like you and me act like that change never took place, something is desperately wrong, and we need to come back to the central message of a passage like the one before us today. Here's what Paul's saying in these three short verses to us in Indian Creek. You're different now. You're different now. You were drunks and addicts. You were ungrateful brats. You were self-righteous hypocrites. But you are those things no longer because you're different now. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Corinthian believers were different from what they had been for the first 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of their life? Fundamentally different. Do you believe that's even possible? What about today? Do you believe that people can change fundamentally like a liar can become a truth teller, a manipulative bully can become gentle, meek, and kind? You see, most of the people in the world don't believe that this is possible. You know this. 
I mean, sure, we can change in one respect, sort of like a seed becomes a sapling or a banana becomes a rotten banana. Or a, the potential energy in a lump of charcoal becomes kinetic energy in the heat of a charcoal grill. Or yeah, uh, water can boil and become steam, or it can freeze and become ice. Fair enough, but the nature of the thing doesn't change. A banana is still a banana. Uh, water is still water. In other words, most people believe that a person might change in the sense of growing up or wearing out or responding differently to different circumstances, but you are who you are. You don't change in a fundamental sense. Your desires are your desires. Your passions are your passions. Your actions and beliefs are products of your genetics and your upbringing and your circumstances and your environment. And that's who you are, and you can't change. But friends, this is exactly what the Bible claims can and does happen to people all over the world. It's possible. In fact, it is inevitable that a Christian will be different, that he or she will be converted. And it's this reality that Paul wishes to remind the Corinthians about here in these three short verses. You're different now, and there are three ways in which this is true. Let me tell you the three ways, and then we'll talk through them one by one. First, you're different now positionally. Secondly, you're different now practically. And then finally, you're different now essentially. So in the first place, you're different now positionally. You're different now positionally. Paul begins in verse 9 to describe the reality faced by every single person on the planet who is not in Christ. He says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that sentence ties us back to the very first verse in the chapter. Do you remember what was going on? The Corinthians were dragging each other before a court of law, and, and Paul says, you're doing this before the unrighteous, before the unjust. Uh, they were seeking to take advantage of each other before an unjust magistrate, but it's also the same word that Paul uses here in verse 9. So on its face, you might say that Paul is making another point about lawsuits, like don't sue your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't bring them to law before an unrighteous magistrate because that unrighteous person is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But remember how Paul reasons throughout this letter. He brings up a problem. In this case, the problem is these frivolous lawsuits. And then he says, instead of saying, just stop it, what does he do? He takes us deeper into gospel truth, and that's what he's doing in this passage today. You see, every person in the world has a major problem, and that problem is this. We are unrighteous and therefore will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, well, who cares? <laughs> why, why would that matter? I mean, I... I have a good job, I have a nice family, I have a couple loyal friends, I've got a few bucks in my wallet, I have a vacation coming up so I won't inherit the kingdom of God. What in the world does that have to do with my life today? What is its relevance? What does it even mean? Well, if you want to understand Paul's letters, you need to start with Paul's Bible. Remember that? And if you start with Paul's Bible, you'll find that everything in 1 Corinthians 6 grows out of the soil of the 7th chapter of the book of Daniel. Daniel, of course, was a prophet of God living in the city of Babylon many centuries before Paul. One day, God shows Daniel this vision. 
He sort of pulled back the curtain so Daniel could see the big picture of what was going on in the world, not at the level of individuals like you and me, but actually at the level of kingdoms and empires. It's an alarming vision. Daniel sees these great beasts, and an angel explains to him that these beasts represent great kingdoms, violent empires that are going to crush and destroy. And Daniel knew about that by experience. He himself had been dragged away from his hometown watching his neighbors and friends be killed by a conquering invader. But then in Daniel's vision, it's like he's transported from earth to heaven, and he's brought into the very throne room of God, and seated on the throne is the Ancient of Days. And this king sits in sovereign power over all the kingdoms of the earth, and then Daniel in the vision sees one like a son of man. Paul is later going to come to understand that this Son of Man is actually the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And Daniel says, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here there are all these great empires, and they're oppressing the weak, and they're tearing apart the peoples of the earth. But each one of them is going to fall, and Jesus is going to get an eternal kingdom, one that is never going to fail, and it's going to be total and all-encompassing. Everyone is going to recognize him as the king, every ethnicity, every language group. But then Daniel sees something even more, well, not more remarkable, but something that must have really captured Paul's imagination when he thought about the churches he planted. Churches like the one at Corinth. Daniel sees that when the Son of Man, Jesus, receives the kingdom... And all of earth's empires are finally defeated. Then something wonderful is going to happen. Here's how Daniel puts it. Listen. The Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Yes, they're going to suffer. Yes, they're going to be oppressed and mocked and persecuted by the rebels and rulers of the world. In fact, there's going to come a great wicked one who's going to wear out the saints of the Most High, and they shall be given into his hand. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, Daniel sees, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Do you see how Paul must have had this passage in the back of his mind when he considered the fact that the Corinthian believers were dragging their brothers and sisters in Christ into a court of law? Have you ever allowed that truth to sink in, that one day all the kingdoms of this world Every single one is going to crumble and, and congeal together, and there's going to be one last battle, one last writhing struggle, and they're going to be brought to heel, and that the Lord Jesus will reign, and not only that, but the saints of the Most High, those who are in Christ, will be given a kingdom that will never end. Have you ever allowed that to just sink into your mind? Like, that is mind-blowing. Can you imagine a day in which oppression and slavery, 
and theft and abuse and murder and terror and war all give way to an unending kingdom of peace and prosperity and joy and service and holiness when all of the righteous plans and projects of all of God's people come to pass and they bring about the garden of the Lord on the earth. This is the future in store for those that both Daniel and Paul call the saints, the holy ones, the ones set apart for service in the temple of Christ. There is nothing, folks, listen, there is nothing more important than knowing whether you will be there to inherit the kingdom. Nothing is more important than that. Will you enter it or will you be shut out? And Paul says the unrighteous... They'll be shut out. They won't inherit the kingdom. They'll be condemned to eternal torment away from the presence of the Lord. There was a time when the Corinthian believers were in danger of this very thing. They were outsiders. They didn't belong. They weren't the sons and daughters of the king, so they weren't going to inherit the kingdom. But Paul wants to remind them, you are different now. Now you are heirs of the kingdom. Your future is to reign with the Son of Man under the authority of the Ancient of Days. No ruler, not even the mighty Roman emperor, can take that away from you. Paul says in Romans 8, it's not height or depth or things above or things below or things on the earth or things under the earth or, or anything can take away the love of Christ from you. You are going to inherit the kingdom. You're different now. You were outside, now you're inside. The same is true of you today, believer. You're different now. There was a time when you were lost, destined for wrath, subject to the miseries of sin's punishment, alone, without hope, and without God in the world. You say, oh, Pastor Jake, I've always been a Christian. Not true. If you think that, you don't get it. You've been converted from God's enemy to God's child. Does that make a difference to you? Your position in Christ. The fact that there's going to become, there's going to come a kingdom and it's going to be given to the Son of Man and then that kingdom is going to be given to the saints. Does that make a difference in your life? Here's what happens when this truth begins to really sink in. All of the things that you think are important in this life begin to fade away into the background, don't they? You, start, you stop caring about the present things and you start caring about eternal things. Will you care in eternity whether a stranger on the internet thinks you're smart or foolish? Are, are you, I'm, I'm asking, are you going to care in eternity whether a stranger on the internet thinks you're cool? No. Then why do you care now? Will you care in eternity whether your clothes were stylish and impressive? No. Why do you care now? Will you care in eternity whether your kids grew up in a fancy house or a plain house? You're not going to care. Why do you care now? When we devote all of our energies to squeezing as much out of this life as possible, when we plan our schedules and spend our money and invest our time in material possessions, in riches, in achievement, professionally, we are acting like the unrighteous. We are acting like we won't inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul wants to remind us, you're different now. 
positionally. You've got a new position in Christ. You've, you, you're going to inherit the kingdom of Christ. You know what people care about who will inherit the kingdom of God? They care about serving God. They care about obeying God. They care about righteousness. They care about justice. They care about the souls of men. They care about the glory of God. They care about the wisdom of God, about ordering their life in accordance with God's direction. They hold their possessions loosely. They're, they're generous. It changes us, right? You're different now, positionally. Secondly, you're different now, practically. Practically. Beginning in the second half of verse 9, Paul expands on what he means by unrighteous. He gets very specific. Who will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous. Okay, but Paul, what do you mean by the unrighteous? Okay, I'm going to get very specific because this is what we do. This is where our creativity and our moral twistedness get us into trouble. We want certain sins to be explained away so that we can engage in those things without feeling bad about ourselves. So we sort of make it seem like, well, this sin is not unrighteous like that sin is. And Paul says, okay, well, I'll get specific for you. I'll give you some examples. So he lists these ten examples of what he means by unrighteous. These types of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. You say, Jake, that's nine. Okay, yes, the translation that you have in front of you possibly, is taking two of those terms and smushing them into one term. But in the original, there are ten. And I think that's important that you know that. You need to know that he includes ten things because, once again, Paul is pointing us back to his Bible. You know, for example, that Moses tells us, and God said ten times in the book of Genesis. And you know about God's ten words in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments. Paul knows that the Old Covenant, even though it is fulfilled in Christ, perfectly displays the moral righteousness of God. Praise Christ. Jesus kept the law on our behalf, but the law he kept was an expression of the will of God for you. It's a reflection of his unchangeable character. So here's what Paul is saying. If you are one of the saints, if you are one of the people of God, then you aren't going to borrow your morality, your ethics, from the world around you. You aren't going to borrow your morality from your own imagination. You are going to get your morality from the revealed will of God, the Bible. And that has practical implications. The saints don't live like those who have no share in the inheritance of the kingdom of the Son of Man. You're different now practically. And that reality, it's going to hit the Corinthian believers square in the face. Because as we've already begun to see, each of these ten things is a problem for the Corinthian believers. They struggle with each of these things. They were proud of the fact that one of their church members was living in a lifestyle of immorality. Uh, he was in an intimate relationship with his father's wife. Others, we're going to see later in chapter 6, were involved in the sordid services of the brothels. But the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says it right there. There were some members of the church who were enjoying food and wine at the feasts in the idol temple, claiming that an idol is nothing, and so therefore they could celebrate idol worship right there alongside their pagan neighbors. But Paul says, listen, an idolater is not going to inherit the, worship of, uh, the, the kingdom of God. 
in Corinth, perversion was apparently quite prevalent. See, in the Greco-Roman sexual ethic was very different from our own. You need to know that. It wasn't about right and wrong. It was about power and domination. I'm sure you can imagine a powerful man in Corinthian society might expect his wife to stay faithful to him, but as long as he provided materially for her, as long as he provided for his children, he could be as promiscuous as he wanted to be. And sad to say, sometimes that promiscuity spilled over into same-sex relationships of various kinds. Now, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, uh, but historians tell us that in Greco-Roman society, it was expected for a man to do these things as long as he didn't take on a passive or effeminate role. Again, it was about power. You didn't want to appear weak. That was what was most important. The reason I bring that up isn't to make you squirm or wonder whether you're going to have an awkward conversation with the kids on the way home. No, I bring it up for this reason. Here's why I bring it up. Corinth was no different from our own culture in this respect. There was already a system, a very well-defined system of sexual ethics understood by everybody before the gospel arrived. It wasn't as though Paul came into the city of Corinth and they were like, man, we've been wondering what was right and what was wrong in these matters. Can somebody please tell us? No, they already had deep-seated beliefs about these things and Paul comes in with the gospel and it confronts society head on. He shows up and he starts to preach the gospel. People get converted. They change. They go from being God's enemies to being God's sons and daughters. And that dramatically, radically changes their approach to sex and marriage. They became Christians and immediately they became something totally different from the culture in which they had grown up. The change was practical and it was profound. We don't think like that today. We excuse this away. Years ago I was just starting out in ministry and I met with a young couple about their marriage honestly I can't even remember what the actual problem was we sat down and uh, like I typically do I asked them to share their story and so they started to talk about how they had gotten together both had been married before for a short time they had children they divorced before meeting each other then they had done what just about everybody does they uh, went out a few times, they decided to see if they were physically compatible, and then they started to become exclusive, and then they moved in together, and finally, after a few years, they got married. And they told me that it had been kind of awkward around their extended family during that season because they had grown up in a conservative church, and their parents and their siblings were very old-fashioned. That's what they said. They, that my parent were, Our parents are old-fashioned. Now, I've learned over the years, I've grown, I hope I've grown a little bit, that comments like that, you've got to just write them down and come back to them later on. You've got to let people share their story. But I was young, I was inexperienced. And so I stopped them and I said, that's not old-fashioned, it's biblical. The Bible teaches uh, that, that sex and marriage go together. You're not supposed to do what you did. And they were very polite about it, and we kept going, and they shared the rest of their story, and then they left, and I never saw them again. <laughs> but this is, this is what they were saying is the way that we think, isn't it? That, listen, the reason that Paul says the things he does about things like sexuality is because this book is old-fashioned, and that's the way ancient people thought. No, it's not. Absolutely not. This was hitting the culture head-on. 
and it hits us today. See, the world, even so-called pastors nowadays, Lord help us, is going to tell you that it's old-fashioned, that it's unrealistic, that it's unhealthy, that it's bigoted, even dangerous to say that God expects you to reserve sex for marriage, real marriage, not the travesty legalized a few years ago. In fact, I'll tell you exactly how this works. Scholars get together, they talk about the Bible, people who study the Bible for a living, they go back and forth, they argue, people from conservative traditions, people from liberal traditions, people teaching in universities, including Ivy League universities, they all have gotten together after arguing about this and saying, and most of them admit, hey, Paul's saying what he seems to be saying. And then some guy with a social media account, a gift for Gab, and an agenda comes along, and he cherry-picks a few quotes, and he says, listen, scholars disagree about whether Paul was even talking about homosexuality, for example. Or, you know, Paul wasn't really talking about sexual ethics at all. He was really just making a point about lawsuits still. Or, uh, you know, Paul only says this because of the cultural context or some other ridiculous thing like that. And then a professing believer with a desire to excuse his or her own sin finds those videos on the internet or those articles and says, see, I can live the way that I want to live and still be right with God. Listen to me. This is exactly why Paul prefaces all of this, statement, all of this talk with this statement. Do not be deceived. And he says this, if you check out your old, your, uh, the rest of Paul's letters, he says that kind of thing in almost every instance where he talks about sexual ethics. Don't be deceived. People who habitually embrace the lifestyle described in these verses will not inherit the kingdom of God. But Jake, he's such a good guy. I mean, surely he'll be in heaven. No. He will not inherit the kingdom of God. But she's so sincere. But she will not inherit the kingdom of God. But they're so faithful in their relationship to each other. But they will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what we do. We get deceived by our own desires. We twist it. And in an effort to give ourselves a little room to live the way we want to live... We say exactly, exactly the opposite of what Paul says in the Bible. We say, I know that person is saved when the Bible says, no, they're not. Now, of course, we can't see people's hearts. I'm not talking, we're not the ultimate judge. I'm not talking about withholding judgment. That's good. I'm talking about passing judgment, saying, no, I know that person's a Christian. No, you don't. In fact, you have evidence to the contrary. Don't do that. Don't be deceived. You Corinthians, you used to do this sort of thing. You used to act this way. You used to make this your identity. You used to be greedy and sue people all the time. You used to be a drunk and a party animal. You used to tear people down with your words. You used to trick poor folks out of the little money that they had. But you're different now. You aren't supposed to do those things anymore. You're different now, practically. And listen, if you're not, 
if you're not different practically, then you have every reason to go back and ask yourself, am I really converted? Do I really believe in the gospel? Because living like someone who will not inherit the kingdom of God, it, that's, something's really wrong in your life. You, mean that you may need to go back to the basics, and that leads me to the third way in which you're different now. You're different now positionally. You're different now practically. And then in the third place, you're different now essentially. Essentially. Verse 11 is glorious. Paul says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Why is it that the believers in Corinth were so different? Why did they have a different position? Why did they live differently? It's because of a mighty work of the Holy Spirit of God. They were living life for the flesh, for the present, for the sinful nature, and then one day they heard Paul or Apollos or one of the other church members holding forth about a man who had taken the place of sinners and lived the perfect life and kept the covenant of God and then took the punishment for sinners on the cross and then rose again from the dead and the Holy Spirit kind of like woke them up and they realized, that's me, I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness and there's nobody else I can go to for that forgiveness and I believe and they were changed. That's why they were different, because their heart had been born again. They had been cleansed and cleaned up, no longer filthy and unfit to come before the presence of the Almighty, washed. They had been sanctified, set apart from that which is common or unclean, made in an instant into a living vessel for the temple of Christ, holy to the Lord. They had been justified. They had been declared righteous, not by their own works, but in the name of Jesus Christ. Listen, it's not the pure or the innocent who will inherit the kingdom of God. This is such good news. It's not the people who have never done anything wrong who will inherit the kingdom of God. It's the thieves and the murderers and the swindlers and the drunks and the adulterers and the idolaters and the immoral who have had an encounter with the God preached in the Bible who have been changed who will inherit the kingdom of God. It isn't about you've never been. It's about you were and now you're different. If you're in Christ, you're different now. You're holy. You're set apart to Christ. You have a new nature through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to say yes to sin anymore. No, you don't. Don't, don't ever believe anybody who tells you that you have to do it or that's a need that you have. No, it's not a need. You can obey by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's time, it's time to leave that old life behind. Like, stop playing around with it. Stop riding the fence. Get it out of your life. You're different now. You don't need more knowledge. You don't need more self-esteem. You don't need to try harder. You need to have an encounter with the living God. And, and if you're not in Christ, this is my message to you. That's, you don't need all of these other things. You need one thing, Jesus. You need to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. I wonder this morning if there is anyone in here in whom the Holy Spirit is doing his convicting work like you've heard these descriptions, you've read the things that Paul has said, and you've said, that's me, that's me now, that's me today. 
what do I do? Here's what you do. Just call out to him. Say, God, I'm a sinner. You've got me. You've shown me. And I need forgiveness. I can't change myself. I can't excuse what I did. You're not going to excuse it. I need someone to take my sin away. And I believe that Jesus is your son. And I believe that he's the only one who could take it away. I believe he died for me and rose again. And I trust him. He's the only one who can save me. God, would you save me for Jesus' sake? And God's word tells us that sinners, the breakers of God's law, the unbelieving, rebellious, idolatrous, wicked can become the children of God by faith. It's like this. Is that true of you today? Are you different now? Have you embraced that difference? Let's live like it. You're different now, Indian Creek. Positionally, practically, essentially. Let's live like it. Let's pray.